All right, if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. There's a half sheet of paper that says week four at the top, sufficiency, and then on the back it has some scripture. I've printed a lot of the scripture we're going to look at tonight, but uh, it's also good, uh, good practice. Many of you enjoy just being able to open up and look at the, uh, the verses around. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1. What we've been doing is laying out this idea of how do we understand the Bible's authority in light of living in a culture that's incredibly skeptical toward authority, especially religious authority. And so you can see week one, we focused on, is the Bible divine? Has God revealed himself? Did this come from God? Week two, is the Bible inspired? Did God's Spirit work through human authors to give us Scripture? So, did it come from God? Was it inspired by God, given through human authors? Three, is the Bible true? Then, in light of those things, for the next three weeks, we're going to hit three different topics about the Bible that are so important for the world we live in. The first one tonight is, is the Bible sufficient? And we'll get into that. Next week is the Bible clear? Can you understand it? What good is it to have a religious book if you can't understand it? And a lot of people say, well, I might read the Bible, but I can't understand what it's saying. Uh, even Christians will come at it struggling. I respect this book. I believe this book. I just don't feel like I can read this book. If it's not clear, what does that say about it being God's Word? Then the next week, week six of this study, is, is the Bible good? It can be from God, it can be understandable, but in our culture, is the Bible good? And that might strike you as a strange, strange question, but you have to realize that a lot of people don't look at Scripture as good. They look at it, in fact, as oppressive, condemning, evil, um, and so how do we understand Scripture in light of that? And then that seventh week, uh, we're going to look at some ideas related to versions of the Bible, translations, um, show you some old manuscripts, things like that. So we'll do that. Tonight, though, this question of sufficiency, the one sentence to, to capture this is the Bible contains all we need in order to know and walk with God. Let me ask you a question before we go to Hebrews. Why does this question matter, this idea of the Bible being sufficient? What does it look like in our culture? Why is this such an important question? What, what are some things that you've seen um, related to this question? Yes, Susan. Exactly. Uh, give us a couple of pluses, like Bible plus. Sure, absolutely, yeah. So if the Bible is su not sufficient as a standard to live by, then you need an additional standard. And some people will say, well, the Bible was good for that culture, but it doesn't work for our culture as a standard to live by. So you need, the Bible's okay, but it's not our standard. There's something else. What are some other ways this works out? Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Sure, 
Sure, yeah. How do you handle those social issues that, that come up? Is the Bible sufficient to deal with those, or do you need something else? Uh, Stephen, what were you? Whether or not it's from God, yeah. So is it, is it sufficient? If it's not from God, the reason we did those first three weeks of, of revelation, inspiration, inerrancy is because if those things aren't true, what does it matter, you know, beyond that? What, what are you dealing with? Um, anything else come to mind on the sufficiency question? Yeah, so it just doesn't speak to who we are what we're dealing with. Um, we need something else that was good for, for a time. We'll work into some of these questions to come. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, see how, see how this plays out. And we'll, we'll start to get into why, why this matters so much. So Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So you have the idea, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, what does that encapsulate? What does that refer to? The Old Testament, yeah. Sorry, it was so simple as to be almost unnecessary to answer. It speaks to the Old Testament, that God has spoken to the prophets. It doesn't say it was bad, it just says that that's how he spoke then. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. What would be significant about the phrase, in these last days, in reference to Scripture being the word of God? Why would he include in these last days? Yeah, so if he's spoken by his son in these last days, these are, this is the end. What else is to come? Not another revelation. <laughs> like, it's given, it's finished, it's sufficient in Christ. So the reason that I'll stress so much, just like John said, when Scripture talks about the last days, so many times we think of either the time we're living in or the time in front of us. But don't forget New Testament Last days has been from the time of Jesus till he returns, living in these last days. These last days, according to Hebrews, means there's no other revelation to be given. We're not sitting around waiting for what's the next story, what's the next thing that God is going to tell us. He's given that to us, and he's given it to us in, in Jesus Christ. Verse 3 talks about he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. What we find in Christ is who God is. He upholds all things by the word of his power. There's nowhere else you need to go. He has all power. When he had made purification for sins, he's taking care of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't miss the significance of the phrase sat down. It's, it's a little bit parallel to Jesus on the cross saying it is finished. You've seen it all. It's established. He's, we're not pacing around in heaven wondering what's going to come next. He sat down, this, this idea of, of stability and, and finality, sat down, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now this next question will only make sense if you were here this last Sunday, but notice that last verse four, the reference to angels. 
Can you make a connection between that verse and something James Walker referred to this last Sunday? What's the connection between Hebrews 1.4 and what James was referring to this last Sunday? Yeah, Susan. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. So if you get to Galatians 1, Paul says, even if an angel gives you another gospel, don't hold on to it because it's not from God. That in Hebrews, one of the things that the people were being tempted to do was to exalt the angels even above Christ. And it's very clear from the book of Hebrews that Christ is, is above the angels. And so the angels are not going to give a message contrary to the one that Christ has given. It's completely sufficient. It's completely final. You're not looking for something else. It's it's established there. So with that in mind, with the fact that Scripture is sufficient, look at your notes. It's sufficient for three things. For salvation, for sanctification, and for satisfaction. So three things that Scripture is sufficient for. It's completely sufficient for salvation, sanctification, and for satisfaction. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. Um, We're going to look at salvation first. And the point here is that everything that you need for salvation is available through Scripture. That you don't need anything outside God's Word in order to find the message of salvation. If anybody tells you contrary, uh, it's a dangerous road to go down. So you go, to, uh, you go to Romans 10, and let's start in verse 9. So Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says... Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice Paul's references to Scripture here. Verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. That verse 17 right there, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Turn over to 2 Timothy. If you go back toward, we've looked at 2 Timothy several times in, in this study just because of its relationship to, to Scripture. If you go back toward the end of your New Testament, you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we get another relationship between the sufficiency of Scripture and the idea of salvation. Anytime someone adds to the Bible to give you information that's necessary for salvation, right there is where you cut it off. You raise the red flag and say, no, we're not going any further because everything we need is found in Scripture for salvation. So, 
2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul lays it straight out there. How do you find that salvation? It comes through the words of Scripture. You don't have to go beyond it. A child can understand it. When you lay out those verses, what it means, uh, a drug dealer on the road, side of the road, like the story David told, you can smoke your way through Matthew and smoke your way through Mark, and then you get to John 3.16 and you read that, and all of a sudden your, your, eyes, your eyes are open to that. Um, if we're not careful, and by we I just mean me, we think in order to really share the gospel with somebody, what do we need? <laughs> We need some sort of presentation. Uh, we need some sort of extra ideas. It says it comes through Scripture, that if you lay Scripture out before people, they'll be drawn to that. You know that we're uh, the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, of Martin Luther's work of nailing uh, the, the 95 Theses to, to the door there. And uh, we were watching a documentary on, of all places, PBS last night, so take it for what it was, but uh, a documentary about Luther, and just reminded of some of those quotes from Luther where at the end of his life he looks back and says, essentially, I did nothing. Uh, and I have to interpret this as Baptist, but essentially he says, I drank a bunch of beer and presented the gospel, <laughs> presented the word, and the word did all the work. Uh, as I laid the word out there, the word was the one that did the work. It, it wasn't me. And you find that same idea in reference to, to salvation um, trying to think of other things, really. I think that's the main thing. Look at the, the next verse in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 16. So th this is going to sanctification. So the Bible's sufficient for salvation. Then verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is, a, this is an important part of 2 Timothy 3 that we sometimes miss. How do you come to salvation? Through the word that leads you to the gospel. How do you grow as a Christian? Through the scriptures that lead you to the gospel. The same scriptures that bring you to salvation are the same scriptures that you continue to read to find growth as a Christian. One of the things that continually strikes me about Christianity, and, and don't, don't ever get over this way that, that God has set this up, you don't have one book leading you to become a Christian, and then you're baptized, and someone hands you another book and says, now you can continue on in the faith. Never lose sight of the way that the, God, the way God has put this together is the same book that leads you to salvation is the book that's going to lead you throughout, throughout your life. What it shows us is Christianity is not about growing into these further revelations. It's not about moving into these other ideas. It's about growing deeper into what you've already received. So if, as you think about Christianity, don't think about this moving on to what's next. Think about how deep do I go? What, what do I, how do I mine the riches of, of what's been given to me? Um, how do people grow in their faith? Honestly, it's when they get together with other Christians and start reading the Bible. 
Now, granted, there are things we do around that. We, we come up, but even we have to be careful when we do things around that. Are we ever taking away from the fact that it's believers gathered around God's word saying, the same words of scripture that have led me to salvation are the ones that are going to lead me ahead. Uh, let me show you a couple of places in scripture this happens. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. We're talking about sanctification. How do I grow as a believer? Well, it comes through Scripture. Scripture is sufficient for our growth as believers. Um, Second Peter, you're getting really deep into, into the New Testament. Uh, back there almost by Revelation. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Where do those come? Well, they come through Scripture. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Keep going into verse 5. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, and the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. While you're there in 2 Peter, turn back to the left to 1 Peter chapter 1. There's one other place that we really see this stand out. The idea that God has given us in Scripture everything we need for life and godliness. You go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, so here's the salvation piece again in verse 23. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So in Scripture, we find everything necessary for growing in holiness, growing as a Christian. What does this mean uh, practically, some, some ideas for application? First, what it teaches us, the sufficiency of Scripture, is when we think about growing in holiness, we want to be careful to only identify as sin what Scripture identifies as sin. So, we're trying to grow in holiness. We're trying to kill sin in our lives. We're trying to live a life that, that honors Christ. Part of killing sin is identifying what those sins are that, that Christ is calling us away from. We are not counting Scripture as sufficient when we start naming something as a sin that the Bible doesn't name as, as a sin. Uh, when we start lifting up our human traditions, our human ideas of, of what cuts you out of, of the body of Christ, what it does is for a new believer, 
who's trying so hard to grow in their faith, who wants so much to honor Christ, when you begin to introduce things they shouldn't do that the Bible says nothing about, what you've done at that moment is you've told them the Bible doesn't give you everything you need for holiness. You need scripture, plus you need me to come along and say, hey, and don't do X, Y, and Z as well. Uh, we, Justin and I, Justin Greenfield and I went out with, with James for lunch uh, after, after Sunday morning, and one of the things we we're talking about is that in cult groups, one of the ways they, they operate is they begin to identify as sins things that Scripture never addresses. And so this tradition over here, if you don't do this or you break this rule, that's considered a sin by the group, even though it's never referenced in, in the Bible. And so immediately you've elevated a human tradition, you've elevated something over the sufficiency of Scripture. That's why we're guarding so much. And we also never tell anybody that there's a path to holiness outside what Scripture um, has given us. I want to get this quote right because I thought it was really helpful. Um, essentially, the quote is, everything required of us is commanded in the Bible. Everything that God requires of his people, that's the key word, everything that God requires of his people is given to us in Scripture. That's one of the implications of the sufficiency of, of Christ that you will find there. Now, here's where an important point comes in. We start to distinguish between uh, core principles and how we live those principles out. For an example, Scripture calls us to worship, to gather together for worship. It doesn't say exactly when that has to happen. It doesn't say exactly where that has to happen. It does mention some of the things that should happen in there. But what Scripture calls us to do is gather together for worship. We, as God's people, go a step further. We have to. We have to say, well, we're going to gather at this place at this time. But what we can't say is, well, you didn't gather at this place in this time, so you didn't actually follow the Bible. No, if they gathered for worship, they did follow the teaching of Scripture. It's just in that application, we don't want to call somebody to do something that goes beyond what Scripture says. And that's an ongoing challenge. And I'll tell you where that gets really hard is when you start having to come face-to-face -face with your inherited traditions. Um, your, your things that you grew up being told were sins, and then you go to Scripture to find those, and you don't find those uh, anymore. And so you have to figure out, okay, what does it look like to live a life of holiness that conforms to Christ, and then how do I live that out in a way that makes sense in the culture? You did not just hear me say that we live our lives conforming to the culture. That's not the case at all. That's not what we're saying. We conform our lives to Christ. We just don't want to confuse human traditions uh, and the commandments of God. That's the type of thing that got Jesus really upset uh, in the Gospels. You go back to Mark chapter 7, Jesus gets very upset when people elevate human traditions to equal the commandments of God. And so we're always trying to find, find that balance. Okay, so salvation, sanctification, and the third one is, is really interesting here. We need to talk through the third one, is the idea of, of satisfaction. I don't have any scriptures laid, laid out directly, but if I was going to take you to one place, if you want to turn to Psalm 1, uh, it's not on the back of your page, but if you want to go to Psalm chapter 1, and the other place that I would, I would mention as you're turning to Psalm 1, the other place I'd mention for the satisfaction of scripture is Psalm 119, 
We're not going to look at Psalm 119 tonight, not only because it's a really long uh, chapter, but Jeff, uh, Jeff Hempel is going to do a two-week study on Psalm 119 at the end of the fall semester on Wednesday night. So we're going we're to push Psalm 119 into the future for a couple of months and, and come back around to it. But Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That connection between ultimate delight and God's word, that scripture is sufficient for our satisfaction. Only scripture can satisfy our soul. We know that chasing anything of this world will never ultimately satisfy us. It's only the word of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good, that only he is able to satisfy your soul. We run after a hundred other things, and the reason they can't satisfy is because, one, they don't reach to the deepest, most ultimate needs we have as people, and two, they're temporary. They run out. They break. They run away from us. They disappoint us. They're not sufficient for satisfaction. This is probably the one, when I was studying this afternoon, that hit me most deeply. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that God's word is sufficient for salvation. Frankly, I couldn't tell you where else to turn for salvation. I'm coming, I'm, I'm learning more and more that scripture is completely sufficient for sanctification, to make you holy. That's something I'm learning and growing into. When I look at my own life and think about, is God's word sufficient to satisfy me? That's the one I can't tell you that I've arrived on. When I look, what do I, what do I chase after to find contentment? What do I chase after to satisfy my soul? Is it God's word? Um, what does it look like? Anybody have any good personal illustrations? I'm not saying you have to tell on yourself, but just what it would mean that Scripture is sufficient to satisfy us. Does anything jump to mind? Maybe people you've known Maybe experiences in your own life, uh, what, what that looks like, Any, anything? I know you're on the spot just thinking about this, but. Yeah, Steve, I'm sorry. Did you say the word regularly? Yeah, yeah, so sometimes you, you find the opposite side of it. When, when God's word is not coming into your life, you always find yourself longing for something, missing something, what's, what's not there. Um, I share this because I find it true in my own life, but, but I'll, do, I'll do pastoral counseling with people, and, and they'll come to me, um, and they'll say, Pastor, I, I just don't, don't really feel the Lord right now. I just feel kind of dry in my, in my life and don't really feel like I'm you know, growing much. Well, are you reading the Bible? No. I, you know, I don't want to be over... I don't want to oversimplify the struggle you're going through in your life, but that's probably a good place to start. And we know how this works, don't we? It becomes a cycle. When you get away from that, you start to feel dry. Then you don't want to go back there. 
And then the further you get away, the more you don't want to go back there. And then you start to feel guilty. And then it just gets into this, this vicious cycle that's really, really hard to break. Anything else about that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example of that. I think about that even here on Wednesday night a couple of times. We've just read scripture out loud to one another, and you're just reminded of those things of, oh, yeah, that's what I need. That's, that's where I need to turn. Um, Dr. Harvey, were you? Yeah, yeah, right. We're going to get into that in a second because that's a, yeah. The only other point I would make on this satisfaction piece, and then we'll move on, is I, I worry about especially what I communicate to my kids about satisfaction. Um, what, what am I telling my kids about what is most satisfying in life? Am, am I showing them it's God's word or not? Bruce, did you have something? I cut you off. In, yeah, yeah. Man, that's exactly right. Did you tell me one time the Lord used that to call you into ministry? Is that what you said? That's what I was thinking that you'd said that, yeah. Okay, so those are the things we find. Sufficient for salvation, sufficient for sanctification, sufficient for satisfaction. What are possible uh, competitors to the Bible's sufficiency? Number one on your notes there uh, would be other religious text, the Bible plus this uh, you say, oh, well, thankfully we don't have to worry about that in evangelical Christianity. Well, we do. Um, it may not be other holy books, but just be so careful that it's not this plus your favorite author's new, new book. Um, and you pick on the easiest targets because they're the people that produce the most books. But but even somebody, and I'm sure if he was standing here, he would be the first to say this is true. I mean, take somebody like John MacArthur that many of you love and read. It's not the Bible plus John MacArthur. It's not the Bible plus John Piper. You just fill in your person there. Other religious text doesn't just mean other holy books. It means the Bible plus this. Uh, and by, books like this bubble up for a while, and, and I know they become easy targets, but we're just being careful. Are we ever saying to somebody, if you really want to know Christianity, then you need this book. Guard yourself as much as you can. You can say this book is helpful. This book could help you understand the Bible more. But just never get off, give off the idea to somebody that if you really want to know God, you need X. If X is not the Bible, I just encourage you to, especially with, with people that are new to the faith, we're trying to be so, so cautious about that. Um, the second thing, Mystical experiences. Uh, I even ran into something like this today, uh, talking, talking with someone. This is the idea of God told me uh, or God spoke to me. Anytime we have those type of experiences, we're always taking them immediately back to Scripture. Um, in high school, you probably had somebody who God told them that they were supposed to marry you or you were supposed to marry them or things like that. And then you're forced to confront like, 
God didn't tell me that. Like maybe we just, you know, our lines got crossed or something. But uh, when, uh, when you're talking about mystical experiences, uh, if we're not careful, what it, it's this desire for is ongoing revelation. That what you have in the Bible is not enough. If God would just speak to me, then I would believe in him. Back to Dr. Harvey's point earlier. If God would speak to me now, then I would really, well, yes, he's given us his word. Well, I need more from him. No, you don't. The Bible is sufficient for salvation, for sanctification, for everything you need is given there. So, uh, you, not saying some people don't have these profound mystical experiences, but if it's ever given as you need this to know God, that's really dangerous. Um, number three, history and, and tradition when it's available elevated either to, I said above scripture, I, I should have just said in line with scripture, when history or tradition becomes to, comes to take on that same level. Does this mean we don't learn from history and tradition? No, we absolutely do. We need to learn from people who have come before us. We need to learn from those uh, who have studied and worked and developed these things, but that's not on the same level. We, we want to be the Bereans. You're always going back to scripture and say, is this what God really said? Finally, uh, the last one there, human teaching elevated above Scripture. I would compare this one to the idea of other religious texts. Be careful about, I have to have my favorite preacher saying this in order to really have the Word of God. That's just like chasing down your favorite author or your favorite book. Um, God's word is, is sufficient as given to us. That's great to have preachers. It's great to access those things. Um, but, but just be careful of the idea of, well, if, X, if person X says it, uh, then it's really from the Lord. No, they're just, their job is to say what God's already said in, in the Bible. And so caveats, things I would want to say before I run out of time. When we say that Scripture is sufficient, it doesn't mean that it answers every question we might ask. There are going to be questions we ask that, that aren't found in, in Scripture. And so when we say it's sufficient, it's not the same as saying it's exhaustive. So sufficient and exhaustive are not the same thing. It's sufficient for salvation, sanctification, and satisfaction. It doesn't mean that you turn there when you have to turn in your biology homework or your math homework or you have to make you know, some technical decision at work. That's not the case. Um, so it's not meant to answer every question that we might ask. Second, it doesn't provide specific direction for every situation we face. And you say, whoa, whoa what do you mean there? Sometimes we want to treat the Bible as a magic book instead of God's word. So where should I move? Who should I date? Where should I go to school? What should I do at work? And then we want to like flip the Bible open, point to a word, and look for. What Scripture does more is it conforms us to the image of Christ, and it teaches us godly wisdom. And the more you get that into your life, when it comes time to make big decisions in life, you know how to make those decisions. Um, and so if we teach kids or youth that when you have a decision to make, open the Bible and you're going to find it. Now what you're going to find in there is be like Christ. Kill sin, pursue holiness, trust the Lord, be faithful, those type of things. If you do those things, when it comes time to make a big decision, you're going to be in a position to be able to, to do that. So what we're guarding against is when we say the Bible is sufficient, we're not saying it's a magic book. We're saying it's God's word given to us for salvation, sanctification, satisfaction. Third, 
when we say that the Bible is sufficient, it doesn't deny general revelation, common grace, other resources. In other words, science, when it's not opposed to the things of God, is a great gift. Uh, psychology, medicine, what you do at work, those are all acts of common grace. People can know things outside the Bible. The Bible is sufficient for salvation, sanctification, satisfaction. So we're not denying all these other things. Uh, what you run into here is, um, I don't know how you pronounce it, but like this idea of ABCDarians or Absidarians. If you, you learn to read from the Bible, you learn to write. From, I love the fact um, that my kids learn to handwrite by writing Bible verses. But that's not the only way that you have that you can learn to handwrite. You can learn Jane ran, and you can learn to read and write. It doesn't have to come from the Bible. It's a great gift that it can, but there are other ways to do these things. Um, when you have a decision to make on a business project, you're not out of line if you study statistics to make that decision, and you don't turn to John 1. <laughs> turn, turn to John 1 to tell your coworker about Christ. Study statistics to make a decision at work. That doesn't mean you're counting the Bible as insufficient. You're just doing a good job at, at your job. Um, so what's the process here? We trust that everything, oh, here's that phrase I was looking for earlier. We trust that everything required of us by God is explicitly or implicitly commanded in the Bible. We assess resources, experiences, and questions through the lens of Scripture. The goal isn't that we only read or experience the Bible. The goal is that we read and experience everything in a biblical way. So not every answer that you're looking for for technical decisions in life is going to come from the Bible. But how you approach those decisions can come from the Bible. This is that distinction we're trying to make. If, if, you're, I can't think, if you're a surgeon and you're operating on me, I don't particularly want you reading out of the Bible at that moment. I want you focused on your medical work, your textbook. Do that job do it in a biblical way. Um, and so I want, you, I want to be clear what we, what we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient. Application at the bottom. Is the Bible sufficient for Christian worship? Well, that's a testy question in, in 2017. Uh, when we, we, this idea that when we gather for worship as God's people, is God's word at the center of that? Um, and I want you to know I feel the weight of that. Because as we gather together as believers, if we're ever tempted to put something else on display other than God's word, it really isn't counting God's word as sufficient. When we gather for worship, the one thing that is sufficient for worship is God's word. Uh, Paul even mentioned before we started, when I was talking to him, one of the uh, pastors that he served with as a music minister said something to the effect, you're really good at music, you're working hard at music, but don't forget about study of God's word. Don't forget about growing in God's word. Whatever we do in worship, it's got to be centered around God's word because God's word is sufficient for that. We could strip away everything else, and that's what we need. For discipleship, as you're growing in faith and you're helping other believers grow in faith, are you counting God's word as sufficient? Or are you saying we need God's word plus something else in order to be able to do that? And then finally, for evangelism and missions, are we, are we ever saying that our attempts to go out and share the gospel happen outside of the word of God? If we're sharing the gospel with someone and it's not based on scripture, 
have we really shared the gospel with them? No, no, we haven't. So I hope what you see tonight with this idea of sufficiency, how much this applies to church life uh, in, in our world, how much this applies to questions we have to ask internally about our own spiritual growth, about our own efforts and missions and evangelism. And so I pray as a church, I pray for you in your life that you will count Scripture as sufficient for salvation, for sanctification, and especially for satisfaction, that your soul would be satisfied by God's Word. All right, let's pray. It's time to go. Father, thank you for this group of people. Thank you for what they mean to me and my wife and my family. God, thank you for the opportunity to be with them, to, to worship together, uh, to study your word together. And Father, I pray that it would transform our lives, it would transform our church. And as a result of that, God, that your word would come out of us, that we would proclaim and display Jesus to the world around us. God, I pray as we go to work tomorrow, as we go to school tomorrow, as we spend time with family and friends, uh, we may not be reading the Bible all day. In fact, we won't be reading the Bible all day long. But God, I pray that everything we encounter, we would do that in a biblical way because your word is sufficient for salvation and sanctification and satisfaction. God, thank you that your word is good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.